Welcome back to the Axe Murder Diaries. I'm your host, Amanda Millette, and today we're covering the Christmas axe murder of Jacob and Annie Google that took place on December 26, 1880 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Now this didn't occur exactly on Christmas, but it was the day after Christmas, and there were mentions of Christmas hymns and Santa Claus. Um, which I find disturbing. So I did work really hard on this case to get it out to you before the Christmas weekend, so I hope you enjoy. So, Jacob, age 39, and Annie, 34, husband and wife, lived in a comfortable stone house on Monocacy Creek in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, with their children. Alice, age 14, Mary, age 12, and Henry, age 11. Jacob worked in the Coleman ore mines. One of the workers was named Edward, or some sources say Joseph, but his last name was Snyder, and he was 24 years old, and he had boarded with the family since July 1879. Quote, Snyder's motive for the murder was brutal lust for the daughter Alice, while living with the Googles, he made repeated attempts to debauch her. Yes, yeah, so this grown-ass man um, was sexually harassing a literal child, Alice, age 14. Google, it seems, threatened Snyder with the consequences if he did not let the girl alone. So Alice did end up telling her parents and her father told Snyder to either stop or move out. Snyder then determined upon revenge on the parents and the ruin of the girl at all hazards. On Christmas Eve, uh, this is, it's weird the way they place this in the article. Um, so right after they mention that, they say, on Christmas Eve, Snyder dressed himself as Belschnickel or Santa Claus and went masquerading about the neighborhood, creating much amusement among the rustic German inhabitants. And I'm not sure if, like, the argument happened, and then he dressed up as either Belschnickel or Santa Claus and went around the town, or if they're just throwing this in there. Because um, later it said that Snyder said that they had spoken words to each other some time ago. So, but either way, it was just eerie that if he was planning on murdering these people... And he then dressed up as either Belschnickel or Santa Claus. And I'm not sure if the newspaper person just didn't know the difference between the two, but there's definitely a difference between Belschnickel and Santa Claus. So the day of the murder. On the night of December 26, 1880, the Google family had friends over for supper consisting of a Mr. and Mrs. Fogel and two children from the young family, ages 14 and 12. Snyder seemed to be in his usual spirits, but did not eat much supper. Snyder sang Christmas hymns with the children who were practicing for a Sunday school entertainment. Literally the day of the murder, he was singing Christmas hymns with children, um, which is deeply disturbing, obviously. The party ran late and Mr. and Mrs. Fogel went home while the young girls stayed to sleep over at the insistence of Alice and Mary. Of course, they would end up having um, a horrendous night and day. 
Mr. and Mrs. Google retired to a small bedroom on the first floor that was just off the kitchen and sitting room. Snyder slept in a cot in the upstairs hallway at the head of the stairs. Two bedrooms opened off this hallway. Alice Google and the 14-year-old, young girl, slept in one room, and the other three children, Mary, age 12, Henry, age 11, and the 12-year-old, young girl, were in the other room. None of these rooms were locked. Um, it didn't say whether there was an option to lock these doors, but I find it highly disturbing these doors were unlocked and the parents knew that <laughs> about what happened with Alice and Snyder, so it's very disturbing that they were all sleeping on the same floor. About midnight, Snyder arose from his cot, crept stealthily downstairs to the kitchen where he lighted a candle by the light of which he found an axe. This axe was leaning in a corner near the stove and was used for chopping the firewood. He took the axe and carefully opened the door off the kitchen into Mr. and Mrs. Google's bedroom. He placed the candle on a table in the kitchen so the light would get in without awakening the sleeping victims who were lying on their backs so he could see where to strike. Jacob Google was next to the wall and Annie Google was closest to the door. Quote, Summoning all his strength, the murderer raised his weapon and struck Google a terrific blow with the pole of the axe, which is the back, crushing in his forehead in a frightful manner. So deadly was the blow that a slight tremor was the only sign that the murdered man made. I'm not sure how they figured that out. In another instant, the forehead of the sleeping woman had been crushed in the same manner, then the murderer turned the blade of his axe and chopped his victims in a most frightful manner. The mouths of both were cut nearly to the ears and the necks were cut by repeated blows until the heads were nearly severed from the bodies. Snyder left the bloody axe lying across the mutilated bodies of his victims. He went into the kitchen and took off his blood bespattered shirt, which was the only thing he was wearing. Um, so it's, he wasn't dressed, when I first read the thing about Santa Claus, I was, I gasped and thought to myself, did he dress up as Santa while doing this? But wearing just a shirt is honestly worse. He changed into a clean shirt and crept back upstairs and entered the room where Alice and her friend were sleep, sleeping. Quote, but his first attempt to carry out his brutal intentions with regards to Alice awoke the girls who screamed and fought off the villain and woke up the smaller children who slept in the next room. Now, these children were badasses in many ways, and I wish they didn't have to be. This next part broke my heart. Little Mary, age 12 again, hearing the screaming and struggling in her sister's room, ran downstairs to alarm her parents. A moment afterwards, she came up the stairs again, crying that her mother's face was all bloody and that she could not wake her. Snyder, still dressed only in his shirt, seized the three younger children and threw them into the room where the two older girls crouched, shivering in terror. I cannot even imagine. He locked them all in this room and proceeded coolly to dress himself. He went over to the neighbor's house of George B. Ritter, he woke him and told him he was afraid Mr. and Mrs. Google were dead, that burglars broke into the house and killed them. 
Snyder said that he had a desperate fight with the burglars. Mrs. Ritter, the smart lady she was, did not want her husband going over there. I think she had some intuition going on there that it was not safe. Instead, Mr. Ritter sent his hired man, Hugh Sant. Snedder and Sant met up with Joseph Santi, who sent them back to the Googles' home while he went to call Reuben Schmiel and Constable Fogel. When all five men arrived to the house, quote, none had dared to enter the room where the murdered couple lay. It was some time before the men, handy farmers as they were, dared enter the chamber of death. Meanwhile, the three children, the, sorry, the children were still locked in the room upstairs. They broke out of the room and they hid in the attic. So nobody, all these five tough men went there. Nobody checked on the kids and nobody helped them, let them out of the room, nothing. They had to break out of the room themselves and then hide in the attic. Around 3 a.m., Constable Fogel, as representative of the law, mustered up his courage and carrying a candle in his hand, followed by the rest, all white faces and noiseless steps entered the room. The scene that met their sight froze their blood and paralyzed their limbs and tongues, all but Snyder, who was cool enough. Mr. Google's head presented a frightful appearance, the upper portion of the skull having been crushed in while a fearful gash had been inflicted across the mouth. Besides these wounds, the head was almost severed from the body. Mrs. Google's skull was also fractured and her throat was cut. Both lay side by side, weltering in their blood, the gashes in their necks and faces presenting a shocking and almost unbearable sight. The murderer had deliberately, completely covered his victims with the quilt. Snyder said, It is too bad, and pointed to the window and said, There is where the men jumped out. I had a hard fight with them. The four other men stood speechless. The bed on which the murdered man and woman lay was a mass of gore and brains. The walls of the room were spattered with blood nearly to the ceiling. The men went back into the kitchen and spoke in whispers. Not sure why they were whispering because no one could hear them besides the kids who no one gave a shit about clearly. Neighbors were notified and started to arrive in droves. After the neighbors were notified, George Ritter and George Young reported the crime to Magistrate Fradneck who notified Coroner Aller and D.A. Ansett. Neighbors of men, women, and children came and started crowding the kitchen. They had heard the horrible news and had come to verify it. Before the daylight, the crowd became angry, vowing vengeance but doing nothing. Alice told a few women of Snyder's attempt to assault her and expressed her belief that he had killed her parents. Now, this was very brave of Alice. This spread amongst the crowd, but no one did anything at first. Snyder was coolly telling his story of the burglars anytime someone new came in. The roads were filled with sleighs burying curious people to the scene of the crime in every farmhouse within a five-mile radius. One look was enough to satisfy the most morbid curiosity, and but a few persons remained in the presence of the dead longer than an instant. Snyder mixed with the people freely and appeared perfectly cool, and he went into the room many times and did not flinch a particle, but looked calmly on the dead and talked as fluently as of the murder as he would of any ordinary topic. Eventually, people started to notice his suspicious behavior, and then he noticed them noticing him. By 6 a.m., Snyder had escaped. 
People let him slip away because they thought he was a murderer and afraid, were afraid of him at first. The newspaper described him as not a man to be trifled with. More of the crowd realized he escaped and they made two groups of men armed with guns, revolvers, pitchforks, clubs, and any weapon they could find to chase after Snyder. By then, Detective Yoey arrived and took charge. He split the groups into two groups. He split the two groups into groups of five. The five groups sh- searched the neighboring crossroads, fields, barns, and houses, while Detective Yoey drove up and down the public roads. They searched for two hours and found nothing. This convinced him that he must be nearby and had not taken the road. Then they came to the barn of George B. Ritter. Remember, that is the barn that, that is the house that he first went to and notified, the first neighbor he notified. The courage of the hunters oozed out when the large, gloomy barn was entered and as the detective mounted the ladder. The farmers yelled to him, be careful and have your revolver ready or he will kill you if he is there. Detective Yoey's foot struck something and he reached his hand down into the hay. Here he is, he yelled. He handcuffed him and confiscated his four-barreled revolver. Detective Yoey told him to go down the ladder, but Snyder jumped down 20 feet instead, landing on his feet like an absolute douche. The crowd now became perfectly wild and cries of hang him, cut his throat, hang him by the thumbs, and burn him filled the air, which I think is fair. Detective Yoey started marching Snyder the half mile back to the Google home. When they were about halfway there, an 80-year-old man fired a revolver into the air to signal that Snyder had been caught. The rest of the crowd at the Google home thought this meant that he was escaping, and they ran to help. They tried to take Snyder from Yoey, but eventually relented and allowed the detective to escort him to the front room, quote, adjoining the one in which his victim still lay weltering in blood. The people surged into the house until every inch of standing room was occupied, and the women, who were far more bitter than the men, used their masculine friends to take the prisoner out and hang him. Um, I think men should be equally outraged by this. A man named Eshlan, Eshlaman, E-S-H-L-M-A-N, mounted the front steps and said, and this part makes me chuckle every time, if we let it go to the courts, this trial will cost us thousands of dollars in taxes, and even then he may escape. At that point, the men went upstairs to Snyder's bed, threw the mattress on the floor, and brought down the bed cord. Detective Yoey blocked Snyder into a corner. By this time, it was 10 a.m., and Detective Yoey was still waiting for the DA to arrive, so he was the only officer on the scene trying his best to follow the law. There are hundreds of people here. Reverend D.F. Brendel arrived and managed to be alone with Snyder. He asked, Did you do it? And Snyder said, Yes. Apparently, the crowd heard this and rushed into the room. They pushed the minister aside and hustled Detective Yoey into the room with the dead. They placed a noose around Snyder's neck and dragged him to the front door. At this point, someone hit Snyder in the head with a club and he fell down the five stone steps. Which, um, that's, that's so unfortunate. They pulled him across the road about 30 yards from the house to a monster chestnut tree. The crowd hesitated when they reached the tree. With this hesitation, Detective Yoey ran out the back door and across the road with his revolver. He pushed his left hand between the rope and Snyder's neck. He ordered the men to give him possession of the prisoner in the name of the law. At this moment, 
An excited man pushed his way through the crowd and confronting Snyder and the officer said, as he removed his coat, I have come to kill you, Snyder. That man was Jacob Google's brother who had just arrived. That's, that's right, go in and kill him. Detective Yoey said, Snyder, I am afraid I can't protect you from them much longer. Snyder replied, they do act like they mean business, don't they? Detective Yoey, do you have anything to say? Snyder gave a little monologue here. Yes, I will tell you that I am not afraid to die. I deserve to for what I have done. The old man and me had some words some time ago, and I said I would fix him, and I always keep my word. I am glad I killed them and would do the same thing over. I want to talk to you a minute, and all I ask those devils is that they will wait until I get through. What an absolute ass. I mean, the only devil here is him. Meanwhile, a shoemaker named John Mack mounted the woodpile next to the tree, climbed up the tree, and passed the rope over the limb. Snyder smiled grimly at the detective and said, Goodbye. He then walked coolly to the tree and stood underneath the limb. Detective Yoey ran over and made a last-ditch effort to save his prisoner, wrapping some slack around his arm. Fifty men seized the rope, jerking Detective Yoey off his feet. Snyder's body rose in the air and swung ten feet above the ground. The men grew tired and dropped him five minutes later. Snyder's body struck the ground with a sickening thud. This sent a shudder through the crowd, but the rope was soon passed over the limb again. The unconscious man, with his face bruised and covered with dirt and snow, was once more pulled up. He was hanged for three quarters of an hour and he died from strangulation. The Aftermath The furniture had all been removed from the room in which the murder was committed, and the floor has been washed up, but it's impossible to remove the stains from the whitewashed walls. Tonight, the bodies of Snyder's victims were prepared for the grave and are lying in the sitting room. With all the undertaker's art, it was impossible to hide the ghastly wounds, and when the sheet which covers them is lifted, a horrible sight is presented. When the DA finally arrived, he cut Snyder down and ordered everyone involved in the lynching be arrested. To quote the newspaper, Nobody believes it will amount to anything. And it didn't. No one got in trouble for that. Remembering the victims. Mr. and Mrs. Google were both very exemplary in their lives and stood well with their neighbors. They were industrious and self-respecting and their tidy home shows that the wife was an excellent housekeeper, which is the highest form of compliment that women really got at the time. The children were removed to the house of a relative. And that is all that is said about the victims, including the children. I can't even imagine the trauma that they faced and then passed down through the generations. Um, and in one article, when they were mentioning the assault and sexual harassment, they were saying that Alice was, quote, and I wasn't going to mention this, but this is just a show. This is just a, this is more a reflection on the men than it is on the women. Um, person writing the newspaper wrote, that she was plain looking and unattractive. Well, you're not supposed to be attracted to a 14 year old, you sicko. Okay. So that is the tragic murder of Jacob and Annie Google. And I know I said it was a Christmas special, um, 
obviously very morbid Christmas. And again, it didn't happen exactly on Christmas, but I think it counts because Christmas was mentioned, Santa Claus was mentioned, there were sleighs, and a chestnut tree. If you enjoyed this episode, for lack of a better term, please keep listening and please leave a review. If you didn't enjoy the episode, um, don't leave the review. Um, but if you have any requests for an area for me to cover, you can email me at theaxemurderdiaries at gmail.com. That's axe with an A-X-E. You can also follow the Instagram, the Axe Murder Diaries, again, an axe with A-X-E. Um, and I hope you keep listening and I hope you enjoy the holiday season and I hope you enjoyed this horrible tragedy. Stay spooky.